0: The Charles Adler Show starts now. I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was definitely before the 2016 election where Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton. I know, I know he didn't beat her in the popular vote, but it doesn't matter. He beat her where it matters, and that's called the Electoral College. So it's uh, the year of the election, and I'm doing a show at the time on Sirius XM, I believe. That's right. So I've got uh, Laura Babcock on. Unfortunately, I, I can't remember exactly how I got to meet her. My producer met her. I met her, and then we started having her on regularly because she was uh, articulate and smart and passionate and conversational. All those, all those things that I tend to adore. And uh, Laura Babcock got really heavy into Donald Trump is doing much better than many Americans think he's doing, and he's certainly doing a lot better than. Many Canadian media professionals think he's doing. And for those people who say Donald Trump couldn't possibly become the next president, he's a great character. He's great to have on, on TV, keeps people interested in, in politics, and blah, 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 blah. He'll never become president. If there's anything that Laura Babcock never said, and I spoke to thousands of people that year, naturally, if there's anything that she would never said, it was that Donald Trump would not become president. Laura Babcock is the head of a public relations and marketing firm in Southern Ontario, known as the Power Group. Every single client of the Power Group is a lucky, lucky client to get one-on-one personal attention from Laura Babcock, and we're lucky enough to have her for the next few minutes here on the podcast. Laura Babcock, thank you so much for joining us. It's
1: my pleasure, Charles. I enjoyed those early conversations, even if I didn't love the outcome.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, so... When you were one of the only people in Canada, certainly, with access to cameras and microphones saying that Donald Trump has a good shot, um, were there times when people tried to minimize you and what you were saying? Were there times when people said, oh, come on, Laurie, you're just saying that because it gets you some publicity and you're the queen of publicity. And that's what this is about. You can't really believe what you're saying.
1: Oh, unfortunately, uh, yes. And uh, Trump derangement syndrome, apparently, I suffer from. And, you know, a lot of people thought that I was just crying wolf or that I was being hysterical, you know, emotional, all these lovely labels. I didn't want to think that. But as you and I had discussed in an early show, uh, right down to when he was just starting to do his rallies, even to secure the nomination. I had described it to you a way that a witness had described it to me, which is that there was a cult-like religious atmosphere, if you recall. Uh, the way that he, it reminded me when I heard my friend's story of when I would go to these big Baptist tent revival meetings, when Billy Graham's you know family would come through, that kind of thing. And the way my friend described the experience of going to this early Trump rally and what I had seen at some of those, I thought, you know what? I think there is something here, something that's different. There's a connection that's being made. And if it can connect on that level, almost a spiritual level, we shouldn't just dismiss it. And then when I looked at his communications from a communication lens from a, as a professional communicator, he was so good at distilling messaging. So good at being redundant, so good at these catchphrases, you know, um, that people repeated and could understand. And he was able to speak to people at a level where they felt seen and respected and heard. And they even likened him to being their microphone, to being the amplification of their feelings about the state of America. So when you have someone who can hold an event, that has that big tent revivalist kind of vibe and they have the communication chops to get a message across in this environment that is punchy and provocative and redundant. I looked at those things and despite any feelings I had about his policies or the content of his statements, just from the structure of his events and his communications Charles, I thought that he was formidable and not to be ignored.
0: So most of us media professionals, uh, when it comes to that category called religion or spirituality. Most of us are pretty secular. A lot of us are agnostic more so than the general population. That's the case in Canada, United States, most places around the world. That's just the way it is with our our category of, of profession. But Laura Babcock, regardless of how secular or agnostic you may be in your life right now, you are a preacher's kid, aren't you?
1: I am. And I went to those crusades (laughs) and and I saw the power of that kind of oratory. And when people start to sway and lift their arms and be enraptured by the messaging, by the person on stage, it's incredibly powerful stuff. And I'm I'm an agnostic now, Charles. Uh, But at the time... Uh, hearing the story, even from my friend who was an agnostic who went to the rally, for him to describe it as being a religious kind of experience to hear and then see Trump's rallies as they started to get wall-to-wall live coverage on mainstream media, you were watching something different. It wasn't the same as you know some of the, the famous Obama rallies where you would see a really good orator and really large crowds. There was more of a connection more of a show involved there was dancing there was all kinds of other elements that you see in these religious sessions right so now we're at a point and i and it's hard to believe, but they're actually articulating, Trump supporters, that if they're in a cult, they're okay with that, right? It's now been called a cult widely, and it's accepted as such, but they're okay with that. Because uh, whether they think it's he's their messiah, or whether they just think that he is the one who is their martyr, and he's positioning himself that way, he's taking all these indictments and all these hits for them, he is, you know, a bulwark for them they appreciate that and they're willing to follow him anywhere. So again, I'm going to say it again, he very well could be president. And people who think that he can't be uh, because of these indictments maybe don't fully understand the level of devotion and his communication capabilities.
0: And and that's where I really think you're on to something that's uh, sometimes tough to explain. It's, It's tough to analyze because it's a different language. When you say level, he is connecting with them on a different level. I love it when media professionals ask the question. How could a guy who paid off a porn star possibly appeal to people who are devout Christians? So let me ask you that, in my opinion, silly question.
1: I think that it's much easier than people realize. Having grown up in an evangelical space, uh, some of the things that Trump said he would do for the evangelicals, specifically around things like the abortion law, right? Getting rid of Roe v. Wade, getting a conservative Supreme Court justices in—those things are more important than all of these other things that they can just say, you know what? Hate the sin, love the sinner, right? They can they can dismiss a lot of those other family values, you know, and say, but he's doing the greater good. And so even when Trump was recently asked at a prayer breakfast, I believe, Charles, what his spiritual journey has been like since he made that, you remember that prayer meeting with the evangelicals back in the day to get their voting block? Uh, His answer was this long threaded thing about how great he was as president and all the great evangelicals he's met. He never ever answered that the question or even alluded to the fact that he had had any kind of spiritual growth because Trump, you know, does not subscribe to those those values, but he is good at selling to his audience. Uh, and it was amazing to watch. It could be a masterclass in how to deflect a question. And this was recent. So he's not lost any of those communication capabilities.
0: So you, you mentioned abortion, and uh, there's no doubt that uh, Trump has uh, given every single assurance that he will only go to a specific organization that recommends justices for the Supreme Court and other courts that are anti abortion, what they will call pro-life. He's given that assurance, and he has fulfilled, he's broken a lot of promises, but he has fulfilled that particular promise. Everyone he puts on the courts is an anti-choice, pro-life person. Fine. So here's my question. What is it about abortion? Because to many of us, we just look at it as an issue, and we put it in terms of the the, the choice paradigm. Either you want to give women a choice, or you don't want to give women a choice. The people who are seriously pro-life and anti-choice don't look at it the way the rest of us do. How does a religious person look at the abortion issue in 2033?
1: Well, it's a good question. I mean, I I grew up certainly getting uh, family magazines from the U.S. and all that stuff uh, in our house, so I had some insight into the thinking around the issue. If people honestly, 100% want to preserve the life of the unborn child at any cost. And that is something that drives them. And they feel that that is their raison d'etre to be on this earth. You know, that's a strong value system. I think, though, the way that it's coming across, and this might be the single biggest barrier to Trump and the Republicans getting uh, winning the election, is the way that it pulls away the health care of women in so many other ways, right? So, People who have a woman in their life, which is just about everybody, are going to have to look at that question if the Democrats can position it effectively, and they're going to have to say, okay, I may be pro-life, I may be absolutely pro-life, However, I do not want to see uh, women die or these young girls who have been raped, having to you know flee to other states to get dangerous surgeries or not have access to surgeries. I don't want women's health care to be taken away, right? that that right to health care for women, I think, is where the roe v Wade decision. Is really going to hurt the Republicans. It's an overreach in a lot of states, right? They couldn't just go with, uh, you know, uh, a stricter anti-abortion laws with provisions for victims of incest or rape or where the life of the mother is harmed. They couldn't just end there. Now, they're even as you know, Tommy Tuberville is holding up getting some promotions in the U.S. military. He's kind of holding on to military promotions because there's a provision where you know they allow time for people to go to other states to get these medical services. So they've taken it too far. So how do religious people feel about it? I think they look at it in terms of they think they're doing the right thing. How have the Republicans and the extreme right in that country pushed those laws? I think they pushed them too far. Uh, And they are going to get that, that pushback. People are going to have to make a decision about do they care about women? Uh, or is it this, this pro-life stance for the unborn that they think is more important than that? And that's really the binary discussion uh, that we're going to see coming up to the election, Charles. You've got to make a decision. Are you for women and their health care? Or are you for this, this ideological, maybe religious position that you've held all these years? Because they've gone too far.
0: So the mother's milk of politics in the United States especially uh, isn't uh, power and it isn't religion. And it isn't women or men. Um, It's money. I, I have to say it. It's money. Can you do the connection for me, Laura Babcock, between religion, the abortion issue, and billions of dollars into the political system?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because the Church of Prosperity, right, the religion of prosperity is what we see in some of these super churches in the US, uh, where it's believed that if you donate to the church, if you tithe, you know, if you subscribe, if you support, then you will be prosperous, that you are somehow, uh, it's not... You know, some people might think of Christianity as being helping the poor, taking care of the downtrodden. You know, those those great values, those biblical New Testament values, the teachings of Christ, the beatitudes. But the Church of Prosperity is a little different. Right. It's, a, it's centered around the if you're a part of this congregation, if you're a part of this movement, then you are going to do well financially. And that that's very appealing. Right. We've seen that develop in especially in the U.S. in the last 30, 40 years. And so where is the intersection between the Church of Prosperity, these large evangelical voting blocks? As we know, Carl Rove really got together for George W. That was part of his strategy to get the evangelical vote coalesced. Um, Where does, where is that intersection? I think in, you know, in US, as you said, money and all these packs and all of this is what runs these campaigns. And evangelicals, if they're on board with Trump's voting record, are going to continue to fund into Trump's campaign. They're even probably helping with his legal fill, you know, uh, bills through these PACs. So I think it's all intersected around power and prosperity. Now, to the question, though, about actual, you know, it's, it's about the economy, stupid. That famous line um, from the Democratic strategist uh, from Louisiana is that, Biden, and what they tried to label as Bidenomics, is actually starting to work. They're starting to see real growth in the U.S. economy. They're starting to see inflation go down. They've got a really good uh, employment rate there right now. So they are starting to see more prosperity as a country. They're still not saying that in terms of their consumer indicators, about how they feel about the economy because there's some residual from the pandemic and everybody's still building back. But by the time we get to the election, the Bidenomic case uh the, the the bottom up as opposed to trickle down economics economics, that idea might actually be a powerful argument for, for the Democrats, that the economy is actually doing pretty well. So I think if, it, if the US election comes down to money, 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 there'll be a lot funneled into anything Trump is up to for sure. Small donations, large packs, the rest of it. But I think there's also going to be a hard case to make that Biden's giant bills he passed in the first year, these bipartisan, massive um, infrastructure bills, those are working. And so they're going to have a strong economy to run on, which is always a huge asset, as we know, when we watch any politics, but especially U.S. politics.
0: Well, Biden's economics uh, and that strategy got a great big boost this week from major Wall Street uh, bank. Uh, Jamie Dimon is the head of uh, J.P. Morgan. Jamie Dimon has never been accused of being uh, a partisan uh, Democrat. And uh, he said it, although he was one of the doubters because the programs looked too big, too much spending, too much debt, etc., Um, He says that the U.S. has the best economy, by far the best economy on the planet right now, and he does give Joe Biden's economic team and economic strategy a a great deal of credit. So, I mean, at at some point, it's difficult for Republicans to make the case to independents that Joe Biden is ruining the economy. Because if you listen to Donald Trump and the people who oppose uh, Donald Trump in the Republican primary, you know they're all singing from the same hymnal that Joe Biden doesn't understand economics. He's too old, he's too feeble, and he's he's hurting America. But uh, there's Jamie Dimon and and Wall Street saying, and of course there's the Dow Jones (laughs) Industrial Average saying, that no, America's doing very well, and the Biden economic strategy is a big part of that. Let me take this to... Uh, a different issue revolving around American politics. Some people in Canada ask the same question that people in the States ask. Can't the Democrats come up with something fresher than 80 plus year old Joe Biden?
1: It's a great question. And what's interesting is that you talked about part of the attack on Biden is that he's too old to understand the economy. I think with Bidenomics coming out, they'll find lots of ways to credit it to Trump's time and you know Biden. They'll they'll come up with ways to diminish Bidenomics, uh, but there is a really strong attack on his age, because even though Trump's only a few years younger. Biden, you can see him aging in office as as it happens to every president. You know, he he talks with a little lower energy and he has had that stumble. Uh, And even when Mitch McConnell had that moment where he kind of froze, he made a joke later that he got sandbagged, like Biden when he tripped over that sandbag. But those are images, falling off a bike, tripping on a stage, you know, having that lower voice uh, that's a little harder to hear that make Biden look a little bit older than Trump. And Trump, with all of his bravado and all of his music and all of his hype, comes across as being more energetic. And so if you're looking at that and you're saying, well, why couldn't they put Buttigieg up this time? You know, and I think Kamala, they've done a pretty good job, the Republicans, of, of really attacking Kamala. And they're even using her as, you know, if he wins, it'll be a Kamala presidency. We've already heard that in some of the Iowa conversations. Right. So uh, they're trying to say, you don't want Kamala. He's not going to make it. Uh, He's too old for this job. And I think that's a powerful line because we're visually we're a visual society, Charles, as you know, you know, and they can run those things over and over and over. And people can say as much as I like Joe, and I'm kind of grateful that he invested in the economy and I like the new bridge in my community and this, that, and the other thing. Uh, I just don't think that he's got that kind of energy that you think of a U.S. president having. So that's something that they're going to have to manage extremely well from a comms optic perspective. They're going to have to stagecraft Joe Biden extremely well up and until the next election, to have him at his most fit, most energized, most powerful, like the State of the Union, where he was <clears throat> extremely powerful and he put a lot of those rumors temporarily to rest. They've got to have those moments, Charles, to push back against this idea that the Democrats are putting up someone who's just too old and out of touch. I don't know that there's anyone else, frankly, in the Democratic field other than maybe Gavin Newsom, who could take that kind of run nationally. And interestingly, Gavin Newsom is apparently going to be debating um, Ron DeSantis on Hannity in the fall. That just came out today. But other than Gavin Newsom, there's not really a superstar from the Democratic Party who appears to have that younger kind of Kennedy-esque energy that I think Democrats like.
0: I think DeSantis is making an enormous mistake um, if he uh, thinks that he can win a debate with with Gavin Newsom. Uh, Gavin Newsom will uh, take him down. Uh so here here's a question I want to ask a communications master uh, like yourself I want to ask the president of power group this question is democracy getting a bad name is democracy getting a bad rap and what does democracy need to make it more I hate, hate to ask this I've never thought I ever would but I have to but what does democracy need to make itself more popular with people around the world in general but right here in North America specifically? What what does democracy need right now?
1: What a fabulous question. So we know that democracy is in peril, and we're not overstating that. We have seen a move to some far-right governments in other countries. We've seen the rise of autocracy. We're seeing some very bold power plays happening on the world stage. We're seeing Trump. Uh, attacking the very pillars of Madisonian democracy, right? The, the going after the the courts now, saying that it's 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 about the court system. The justice system has to be torn down, and the you know defund the FBI. And they're, they're basically attacking the foundations of democracy. And I think anybody who understates that isn't paying attention. So, what does democracy need to do to become more appealing? Uh, it has to, it can't just be an esoteric argument about do you want democracy or autocracy? Because I don't think a lot of people, Charles, really care about those terms or completely understand it. They've even tried to normalize the concept of fascism or whatever, you know. So they've, they've got it to a place where people don't quite understand what they're at risk of losing. So how do you make democracy more appealing? You make it work better. It has to work better. These log jams that we're seeing, this beautiful checks and balance in Washington this partisan logjam is making people think that the system's not working for them, right? Um, the crisis around the world of, of migrants and asylum seekers and refugees and the way that the world is changing post-pandemic, a lot of people think that, you know, if you have a strong person in there, like a strong man type who can just shut down the borders like Trump tried to do. Remember when he was gonna ban all Muslims until he could figure out what the hell was going on? Um, people, lawyers flooded the airports and pushed back and that was where democracy pushed back on that. But unless you have a strong economy and you have people have a sense of hope for their future that it's not going to be taken over by robotics or AI or shipped out in this globalist economy. We've got this global economy. Unless you're making it work, people are always going to look for the alternative that is going to meet their needs. And so, what Trump is very dangerous about is that he is an entertaining fascist. You know, he, he wants to run things in an authoritarian way. He He's saying that, but he's saying it with a wink and, and a laugh and a, I'm doing this for you and I'm your martyr and we're all in this together and I love you. What did he say to the crowd when he finally told them to leave on January 6th during his failed coup attempt? He said, I love you, right? Going back to that kind of cultish connection language, right? Um, and so, the only way to make democracies survive autocracies in a world where we're looking at painful decisions on global on climate change and investments we have to make and changing economy and all these things, all these disruptors I've just mentioned uh, is to show more effective government uh, to show elections being run better. And even though it was the most secure election in u s. history that he can that he spent the last two years trying to um, you know, besmirch, the fact is you still have long waiting lines. You still have people not believing that their politicians are honest. You still have politicians engaged in all kinds of corruption. You still have these these backlogs in the sense that they're not working for the people anymore. So why not just get rid of that system and bring in someone who's going to save them or change that? So it's it's a complicated fix, Charles, but I think it starts with getting out of this conversation of do you want an autocrat or do you want a democracy and getting it to the point like Trump's good at doing of saying what's going to work best for you and let's make sure that it does and then people will say okay this system works best for me I mean it comes down to the value proposition always
0: let me bring it uh, home to Canada Laura Babcock a beautiful country that, that we both share I was looking at a data point today from uh, someone I think we both respect David uh, Coletto of Abacus Data. And he says that, yeah, Canadians, some Canadians are aware that inflation is uh, as, as bad as it is, it, not as difficult in Canada as it is uh, in some other countries. Uh, and here's the data point that just, just took hold of my eyeballs. Only 13% of Canadians are aware that we're doing better than other countries in the G7. As a matter of fact... The truth is we're doing better than all of the other countries in the G7, which means we're doing better than Britain and Germany and France and the U.S. and the others. We're doing better. Only 13% of Canadians know that. Is that because Canadians don't care? Is it because Canadians don't read? Is it because Canadians have been exposed to too much partisan rhetoric and they decide they don't believe either side? Why is it that Canadians don't know that we're some of the luckiest people on earth?
1: Well, there's a couple of things, right? One is even back to what I'm saying about the US and the Bidenomics is working, people are still not, the consumer confidence isn't as high as you would expect it to be in a robust economy because there's still the pain of the pandemic. We lived through that massive global 100 year disruption. And so people are feeling a little bit wary. So I think there's part of that, right? We're all feeling a little tense about the economy generally. But then you look at the fact that we're not feeling that way, Charles, 18% increase in groceries. Uh, that hurts in my house with two teenagers and a, a young chef. I mean, it's incredible the burden that that puts. And, and we do fairly well. How is that for people, people who live on disability, for instance, in Ontario anyway, could never pay rent in this province with the housing crisis that this country is in. And then you add on top of that inflation, food banks are at, at beyond capacity. We are not feeling like we're doing better than the other countries in the G7. So part of that is... The feelings left over, the the PTSD from the pandemic. Part of that is our actual experience when we try to buy things, when we uh, try to look at our check, our you know our balance at the end of the month. And the other part of it is is really old school. And this is hard to say for Trudeau because he used to be an innovator in communications, old school communication structures coming out of the Trudeau government, because it worked for you know happy sunny ways. Trudeau seemed very engaged, he seemed very affable, he would do town halls, there was great, you know, yay. Then he got into this kind of classic communication from this ivory tower position where they'll put out policy things, they'll talk a little bit here and there. And that's not good enough because Pierre Polyev is a juggernaut a juggernaut of communication. And, and you know, you can talk about rage farming, getting people whipped up with the most negative points and keeping them on kind of the edge of fear. But you can't rage farm and you can't do that if the world around them, the reality is awesome, right? So we have this reality around us that kind of sucks compared to pre-pandemic days. Uh, we've got a prime minister who has seemed out of touch in Ivory Tower and doing this kind of classic, elitist communication style. And then you've got An opponent who has been in politics forever understands how to tap into those pain points of Canadians and is fearlessly, repetitively, redundantly, almost Trump textbook uh, with Canada. So uh, that's I mean, that's what's going on in this country. There's real anger and fear and economic woes. And there is a real disconnect in the communication. Should Trudeau have been championing that data point uh, in real ways, not, you know, from an Ottawa press conference, look how great we are here in Ottawa, but by going to every single indicator of that and showing people in real terms what that means to be leading the G7? Yes. Has he been? No. You know we've seen some sporadic dumping of, of policy state of policy events in the la- or you know, funding announcements in the last week, uh, but he's got to come back in the fall if he wants any chance at catching Polyev's ten point lead, and start telling Canadians why it's better. You know, if you don't tell us we're not feeling it <laughs> you know, so.
0: oh we certainly we're not we're certainly not feeling it at at the grocery store i mean that is one place where i don't know whether i'm seeing rage but certainly i'm seeing consternation i'm seeing uh, quizzical faces i'm seeing people you know take plums out of the basket and putting them back into the basket because it's just you know 3 bucks a pound is just like too much Uh, Here, here's the thing I want to ask about this rage farming, because rage farming is generally the the criticism against uh, Paulio. Okay, he's rage farming. Now, we we don't get uh, dismissive of a uh, grain farmer when he's grain farming. We know that uh, the the soil, uh, the conditions, uh, the fertilizer, all of it makes sense in that particular field to do grain farming. I don't think that rage farming would be successful if there wasn't some genuine rage out there. Isn't it true that Polyev is rage farming, but he's got fertile soil?
1: 100%. Every time that I do any kind of commentary on Trudeau or, or Polyev, the, the response that I get, whether it's troll farms who are activated or rage, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of furious messages, right? Not all of them are anonymous accounts. There is rage. There is incredible frustration. And what, and what I've noticed, Charles, recently, and I think this is an indicator that I'm very concerned about is I'm seeing people who share a lot of Trudeau values, right? In terms of, you know, need to help with a poverty and need to help with this and that and the other, thing. you know, traditional kind of liberal NDP values, um, progressive values. They are progressive, but they want Polyev because they're sick of Trudeau because they're sick of the underfunding or they're sick of the crisis of homelessness or they're sick of all of the you know, uh, anxiety in the Canadian cultural conversation or they're tired of fights at Thanksgiving about Trudeau. Like they want a break from Trudeau and from his government, even though they know Rationally, that Polyev hasn't been putting across a lot of policy solutions. He's been just doing a lot of issue identification and and you know and whipping up that feeling of consternation. They're kind of sick of the Trudeau government. The longevity of it, the Ivory Tower nature of it, the lack of relatability of it. That so when I see progressives wanting to try out Polyev, I think that the Trudeau government has to realize that just doing a, a little message like he did the other day, that all it's about is Cuts and and anger. Well, you know what? Actually, it's about more than that. It's about a government that's been out of touch. It's about and a cabinet shuffle might or might not help. But it's really about this prime minister, uh, ceding the power of the public square to his opponent. And does he have time to catch up? I'm not quite sure because he'd have to come up with something better than just saying Polyev's all about cuts and anger. He's got to address what he's going to do better for Canadians and make it as punchy as Polyev.
0: Does the separation play a part in, in any of this, Laura. I realize some people say that uh, certain topics should be off the table. I'm not an off-the-table guy at all. I'm not asking you to exploit uh, the Prime Minister and, and his wife's pain. That's not the point of this at all. But I need to ask, as far as Canadians connecting with the Prime Minister, do they view his current marital troubles? And when we say current, we have no idea you know, how current this is. It's maybe an old story with with, with Justin and Sophie. But from our perspective here, you know, the breaking news this week, the biggest story, Justin Trudeau and and, and Sophie Gregoire-Trudeau splitting. How big a deal is that in the connections that the folks make to the prices at the grocery counter, to the housing crisis and the homelessness crisis and everything else, the separation of the Trudeaus? How much impact does that have on the Canadian mindset?
1: Well, it's interesting because I think that when you see a family struggling and suffering, uh, it you know pulls at your heart, of course. And when you see, as the coverage has been in the last 24 hours, Charles, a lot of images of his father's time and that some of the challenges in his father's marriage, Canadians are reminded about their connections and their feelings for the Trudeau family. And I think Justin has seemed to be very distant and rather elitist and his communication, as I said, has been rather detached, I think possibly people will see this and say, okay, he's human. You know, it's not all perfect. You know, it's not this perfect life that he has that I've, I've started to maybe resent because he seems out of touch with the challenges that I'm facing in my life. So I think that for some Canadians, it will remind them, okay, now this is a relatable person. I do have I think, especially for older Canadians, a connection to the Trudeau legacy and brand um, that certainly I think has helped Trudeau Jr. in the last couple of elections, right? So I think it might actually engender some sympathy. It might actually make him seem more relatable, but it depends entirely on whether or not he's going to be able to deal with those, you know, those pocket bush book, those dinner table issues that Canadians are are so stressed out about. You know, he's got to meet Canadians where they are. And then I think people will leave that personal, um, sa- you know, sadness, that that dissolution that dissolution of his marriage. I think people will not factor that into their politics. Those who really, really don't like him can make all kinds of, you know, terrible comments. But I think for the rest of Canada, we want to see what he's going to do about the things that matter to us more than we want to really spend time thinking about the state of his marriage.
0: Laura Babcock, I want to keep your, uh, your power group uh, public relations and marketing hat on here for, for this uh, particular uh, question. If you're casting uh, a person for political success, media success, but the point is public communication success, and you have a choice and you've got two faces uh, that you've been given, two faces are on your short list. One is the face of Justin Trudeau and the other, Pierre Polyev. Who does Laura Babcock choose
1: well, if you're talking about just straight up optics and how they look, you know, Trudeau has had an advantage of looking like a very young, healthy, handsome individual. Um, but, you know, people shouldn't vote for someone because they have nice hair. <laughs> you know? And Polyev, we've seen him trying to do a little bit of a, a hip upgrade, you know, change up his style a little bit. Uh, but all of the changes to your wardrobe, is not that's not going to change the look when your policies are not resonating with Canadians. So, you know, optically, you can kind of work with whatever you have to, the better looking and the younger, the more vibrant, as we talked about even with Biden and Trump, it helps optically. But I think Canadians are looking again, and I keep bringing up the grocery store, Charles, because I think the grocery store matters, like it is for a lot of people, their second biggest expense, maybe to their mortgage, right? Um, Who is going to fix that issue? Who is gonna make our quality of life better? Who is going to deal with our refugee crisis and our homeless crisis? Who is going to get deeply affordable housing stocks up fast? You know I, I think for most canadians we're a little bit past you know in good times when everything is equal and it's just a matter of who optically is more appealing to me who's better as a communicator uh i think that you could make it a shallow consideration like that but that's not what canadians are feeling they're not feeling shallow they're feeling pretty deep <laughs> I don't,
0: I don't, and i don't want to accuse canadians of being shallow i'm i'm, I'm simply saying that for some people, I'm talking specifically the, the undecideds, uh, for those people who don't get heavy into politics, and that's one of the reasons they're, they're undecided, I just wonder in the final weeks of a campaign, and campaigns do matter, and we've seen situations where the polling says one thing before the campaign, and lo and behold, you've got E-Day, and it just blows the polls away and makes the, the poll of even two or three weeks earlier irrelevant. And I just do think, that maybe call me traditional, if you will, but when campaigns matter, uh, how the campaigner looks also matters because, in the end, for the undecideds, Laura Babcock, agree or not, it's a TV show.
1: It is, but so to me, it's not just about the looks, as in their actual facial structure and their follicles, right? It's about their ability to connect and look as though they own the room, look as though they own the energy, look as though they own the moment. I mean, we remember how Trudeau won. There was this giant red wave in the last couple of weeks, these big TV commercials of him at these rallies talking about sunny ways, And you honestly looked at it and thought, wow, that looks like success. Right. So if Polyev is able to get his crowds whipped up and is able to look energetic and, is, and his, his lines like just inflation, I mean, that's brilliant. That is brilliant. Combs. Show me one thing that Trudeau's government has come up with on the other side to box in Polyev like that. They've not come up with a single one. And we've got numerous acts the carbon tax. What a great bumper sticker, right? So, Polyev has got all of these lines he brings out, and the crowd knows them. And che- like it feels very Trump esque. And so, if if Trudeau can look as healthy and as you know do as much yoga as he wants, um, but if he doesn't look like he's got the energy in those last couple of weeks, those critical seventy-two hours, then I don't think it matters about you know how well Polyev cuts his hair. It's going to come down to who looks like they've got the momentum.
0: So all this stuff about conservative and progressive and right wing and left wing, all this just becomes you know, nonsense in Laura Babcock's mind, you have got to have a cult-like following. You've got to think like a cult leader in order to win in the U.S. and Canada. And if I'm minimizing what you're saying, you know, you know, give me a bad rap, but that's what I'm, that's what I'm feeling uh, talking to Laura Babcock right now.
1: I don't think you have to take it to the level of a cult leader because that, that, when I look at a cult leader, I think of devotion without rational. Thought, right? I'm just devoted to the image, to anything. So there's no rational thought. I'm not applying any kind of a critical lens. I don't think that's what you need to be, although we've seen how it can be successful in different countries and with Trump, you know, especially. Uh, I think that Canadians aren't going to say, you know, sign me up for some kind of cult. I want to take away my, I, want to, I want to take away my rational thinking and my ability to discern, and I just want to blindly follow anyone. I don't think that's what we need. So we're not, we don't need a cult leader, but we do need charisma. And we do, and charisma is often being able to make people feel heard. You know, I go back to people saying early on that Trump was their microphone, right? That he was amplifying their pain, and and that's what we're seeing Polyev do. He's amplifying their pain. So if Trudeau keeps going around and not acknowledging the pain and just talking about all the good things this government's done, he's not connecting, he's not amplifying. And so it's not about being a cult leader where you're asking for devotion. It's about making that kind of connection where the person thinks you're speaking for them, that you understand them, that's what we need.
0: So I, I see the, the the finger business as, as mattering. I've always seen Trump as just one of the best. And of course, background being talk radio for, for so many years, it's it's easy for me to, hook into this. So much of talk radio has been giving the finger to institutions that just annoy the hell out of people. Sometimes those institutions are in the courts. Sometimes those institutions are in the schools. But in any case, uh, the talk radio star understands that there is always a critical mass of people who are not happy with the various institutions that, yes, give guardrails to democracy, but also annoy people. And so Trump just Fabulous is giving the finger to politicians. Uh, giving the finger to the media, uh, which which has let people down over the years. I don't have to tell you. So it just seems to me that right one of the reasons that Polyev has an advantage right now is Polyev is absolutely unabashed, unafraid to give certain institutions in this country the finger, And he's giving the finger to the right institutions as far as building a 40% plurality, which is what you need. Uh, What's your take on the finger, Laura Babcock?
1: Well, it's powerful. It's powerful because what it does is it, it, you know, if you imagine a conversation with your friends at a barbecue, if we start talking politics, there's a lot of frustration, right? There's a lot of complaining. There's a lot of this. I am so sick of this. I can't stand this. I mean, so as Canadians I think a lot of us would like to give the finger to some <laughs> some institutions and, and some standard quality of living and things that are happening in the in our maybe in our field of employment things that have happened post pandemic even that people are still giving the finger to the extensive lockdowns in this country right uh, more than most anywhere else on earth so there are I think Canadians. Have a little bit of a finger they're raising about the last five years, uh, and so for a politician like Pauliev, just to to channel that again, Charles, it comes back to um, a, a charismatic person is able is a you know is able to. Understand the room and take that energy and channel that and channel and focus that right in communication. And the finger is such an, a powerful symbol. Body language, of course, being more powerful than any, any kind of verbal stuff we do. Um, so why do people call it giving the finger? Because it means this sense of repudiation and this sense of frustration and this sense of, you know, I've had I'm it, I'm done with you, right? We've all had the finger given to us. It's not a good feeling, but you know exactly what it means. So when Apolliev is able to channel people's frustration and give the finger to some of these institutions, fairly or otherwise, people feel like, wow, that guy guy gets me. That guy is going to fight for me. That guy is going to make my life better because he understands how mad I am, or how bad my life is, or how much my career has gone down, or my savings, right? So the middle finger uh, to institutions might be, is, I think, a risk to democracy, uh, because it does wear down, you know, people's approval ratings of those. The Supreme Court's never had lower approval ratings in the US, right? It's been very effective at at shaking these these democratic foundations. But whose fault is that? right? People aren't going to follow someone who's just angry and pain pointing all the time if they're feeling good. I keep going back to this, you know, communications is, is an art form, but you're also working with content at some point. And if the content or as you said, if the field, if the soil is, is, is fertile for that particular strategy, then you put good comms with that. And it's very, very effective. So yeah, the finger strategy works. Uh, but you've got to have that those seeds of anger.
0: Lord, for those of us who drive, and I think that's most of us, we are most tempted to give people the finger when they annoy us in traffic. So let me personalize this one and just ask you this, Lord Babcock. I know that you must drive all of the various routes in southern Ontario that take you back and forth from the, the Hamilton area to the Toronto area. I know all those roads because I lived there uh, more than once, more than twice, more than three times in my life. I, I keep uh, going back there for for, for business reasons. So whether it's the 427, the 403, the 401, the QEW, I don't care which one it is. Uh, Are are there some days or many days, and are the days now adding up where you are very tempted to do that to somebody on the road?
1: Uh, Well, Charles, might be one of the reasons why I have the darkest possible tinting on my car (laughs) window.
0: You don't want them to see you.
1: Yeah, exactly. I don't need the road rage incident that follows flipping someone the bird, right? I have kids in the car who are going to be driving in a few years, so I'm like, don't start anything. Be calm when you drive, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, this is this is the thing. There's there's lots of things that we need to fix in our country. There's no doubt about it, and I don't think that any Canadian thinks that any politician has all the answers but I, or even that there are answers to some of these complex problems that we're facing, right? Um, but I think there's a lot of fear and where fear exists. I, I did a conference on, on hate once I was a moderator. You know, hate grows, hate comes from fear, anger. There's, there's a lot that we risk if we don't take seriously how Canadians are feeling. You know, will it become an existential threat to our democracy like we're seeing right now in the US? It might grow into that. You know, so, um, you know, we're, we're having a nice laugh around how frustrating things can be and, and flipping the bird. But the reality is I'm hearing a ton of anger and frustration. And right now, whether it's going to end up with another Trudeau government or whether it's going to end up with a polyev conservative government, we don't know. But what I do know is that the, the major, if I was advising a client, the thing I'd be focusing on in the strategy is what are those dominant feelings of pain? What is bothering people the most? What can we do? Small wins, indications of solutions, what can we do and then how do we communicate those? Where and how and how frequently and to what end and what's our metric to measure it? Donald Trump, before he decided to run, I think after he got mad at Obama uh, during that press gallery dinner when Obama mocked him and he decided some say that that was the moment he was going to run for president, he actually listened to talk radio, to your point. He he did research on talk radio pain points and then built his platform, right? So it's extremely important that, um, that we don't take lightly, no matter where you sit on the spectrum, that Canadians are very, very frustrated, regardless of that data point that says we shouldn't be. We are. And so we're going to have to have a politician tell us how they're going to make it better for us, you know, or... In Trudeau's case, he might get the electoral finger.
0: Laura <laughs> Babcock in Southern Ontario, president of Power Group. Thank you very much, as always. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson. Twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press. And every day at choirmedia.co.